0: Welcome, I'm Ben Friedman, I'm a research fellow here at Cato. Um, before I uh, say anything else, I want to uh, thank uh, James Knapp, uh, James Noop of the Cato Conference Department uh, for help organizing this event and also the Cato Conference staff who put this together uh, just as a bunch of other big events were going on. And also I want to thank the Robert and Artist James Foundation for their support uh, for this whole conference. Uh, Thanks to everyone here also for uh, coming and and, or uh, watching uh, online. Uh, Watching or coming in spite of uh, our, I think, kind of uninspired title, uh, the case for restraint in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, The the purpose of uh, the conference is not only to inform you here, uh, but to help us uh, that is my colleague trevor thrall and i uh, who are editing a book uh, on this subject uh, which has the same working title and we're accepting nominations for alternatives Um, uh, each of the four panels we have uh, planned today uh, involves a set of authors who are contributing uh, to that book all have been asked to draft uh, chapters uh, for it which some of them have delivered uh, and uh, that's what they'll be discussing, uh, and we have discussants from uh, outs who are not contributing to the book for each uh, panel to be somewhat critical and help us edit. Uh, and uh, during lunch, we have uh, Professor Barry Posen of MIT speaking, whose recent book on the subject of restraint is sort of the key guide uh, to this Subject and so before we commence with that uh, agenda, let me explain a bit more about uh, why we're why we're doing this. Why do we need another conference or another book uh, on this subject? Uh, given other conferences that have happened lately, given uh, Barry Posen's recent work that I mentioned, and given stuff that people like Eugene Galtz, who's sitting on my left, have done on this subject over the years, there's already a lot to read. Uh, so why do we want to uh, add to that? Uh, pile. Um, well, one reason I think is that our, our uh, friends in academia uh, have done a lot of excellent work in relatively recent times on this subject in a way, not necessarily saying we're making the case for restraint, and I should add that not all our panelists are signed up for everything I'm saying or what Cato says, they're just representing themselves, uh, but um, there's a lot of good empirical work that I think kind of punctures the case made for the grand strategy that the United States operates with these days, which we can call primacy or liberal hegemony, I don't think that case is as good as Barry's book and other things are. I don't think that case has been fully assembled in one place. So that's uh, one thing we're trying to do. Um, in a more, in a broader sense, uh, we in the Cato Foreign Policy Department are are always making the case. Uh, For restraint and and I should point out that it's it's not a new view. We didn't invent it Uh, in some ways. It's as old as u.s uh, Foreign policy this view that uh, you know the United States ought to engage with the world ought to trade with it freely uh, Work with other countries on common concerns diplomatically, but avoid trying to manage it with the United States military uh, and uh, be sort of the dominant force guiding world history Uh, This view says that alliances or generally thinks that alliances are are occasionally useful means to a security end, but not or shouldn't be a goal in themselves, Uh, sometimes more trouble than they're they're worth. Um, It says that global liberalism and uh, stability and U.S. security are not the same thing, uh, and that uh, we should be an example of democracy and liberalism for people abroad, not their armed vindicators. It's not a new idea. Uh, It says that foreign trouble is often not trouble that the United States needs to participate in. So we should avoid fighting in other people's civil wars, uh, a lot of the time at least, and uh, fixing up failed states in the name of counterterrorism. This view takes the same view as the US Constitution in saying wars should be hard to start, not something uh, that can be made easily and quickly by executive fiat. Um, And and it says, finally, that with a a policy like that, we could probably save a lot of money uh, in our defense budget. Now, that perspective, as you all know, has a rich history uh, across all of U.S. history. John Quincy Adams, you know, even up to Cold War realists like uh, George Kennan. Uh, But um, while it retains a reservoir of support in an academic sense... Uh, It's been virtually exiled from Washington, D.C., for reasons that I think we'll get into later, Uh, much, I think, to our detriment. Instead, we have the dominance in Washington uh, of uh, primacy or liberal hegemony, which is essentially a bipartisan approach to the world uh, that says that uh, stability around the world is a product of U.S. global leadership, and that U.S. global leadership means military activities. It means bases. It means patrols. It means commitments. Uh, and occasional acts of war. Um, it also takes the view, this primacy approach, uh, it takes the view, at least in the, in the Washington articulation of it, uh, that internal problems abroad, foreign and civil wars, failed states, or even just autocratic government uh, are, are bads that spread easily and, uh, by their very existence, uh, threaten uh, U.S. security. Um, And and the backers of primacy tend to be relatively optimistic about what we can do through military means to fix up those internal problems abroad. Um, And, and of course, we think this this view has been detrimental uh, to U.S. security, to U.S. civil liberties, to the U.S. economy. Uh, And uh, one thing we're always doing and what we're doing with this book and with this conference is doing our little bit to uh, try to combat that despite the possibility that the political odds are are stacked against us. So with that, uh, as an introduction, I want to turn uh, the the microphone over to our uh, panel chair, Brad Stapleton, who will uh, kick this off. And I look forward to talking to you all uh, later on in the day, and please stick around until the last panel so you can hear me speak uh, right ahead of uh, 5 o'clock, whatever it is. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Uh, It's my privilege to be able to introduce our distinguished panelists on our first panel, The Myths of Primacy, Alliances and Security Dilemmas. Uh, To my right, David Edelstein is an associate professor at Georgetown University in the Department of Government and the Walsh School of Foreign Service and a core faculty member of Georgetown's Security Studies Program. He received his Ph.D. and M.A. in political science from the University of Chicago, and previously he was a pre-doctoral fellow at Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, and a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. To his left is Josh Shifrinson, an assistant professor at the George H.W. Bush School of Government at Texas A&M University. Uh, he's currently a... Uh, visiting fellow at Dartmouth College. Uh, He received his PhD in political science from MIT and previously held fellowships at Harvard and George Washington University. His work has appeared in international security and foreign affairs. To my left, Eugene Goles is associate professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at University of Texas at Austin. For the 2015-2016 academic year, he was also the Stanley Kaplan Visiting Professor of American Foreign Policy at Williams College. From 2010 to 2012, he served in the Pentagon as Senior Advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy. To his left is Brendan Green, Assistant Professor of Government at University of Cincinnati. Previously, he was a visiting professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Green also received his PhD in political science from MIT. Uh, Finally, our discussant is Edward Rhodes, Professor of Government and International Affairs at George Mason University. From 2010 to 2013, he served as Dean of Mason School of Public Policy. Rhodes was a member of the faculty at Rutgers for 24 years, serving as Dean of the Social and Behavioral Sciences and as Founding Director of Rutgers Center for Global Security and Democracy. Rhodes also served as a visiting professor at Princeton University and held research appointments at Harvard, Stanford, and Cornell, as well as Fulbright and Council on Foreign Relationship Relations Fellowships. From 2009 to 20. Th- From 2003 to 2009, he served on the State Department's Advisory Committee on Historical Diplomatic Documentation. Rhodes received his PhD from Princeton. Uh, So on this panel, each panelist will speak for about 15 minutes um, to be followed by comments from our our discussant, at which point we'll uh, open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, So we're going to begin with Brendan. So please come to the podium.
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here today, guys. So uh, nuclear proliferation is a difficult problem to get away from, even for advocates of grand strategic restraint. Uh, None other than our august lunchtime speaker, Professor Barry Posen, as recently as 2006, was writing that, quote, it would be better if Iran had neither nuclear weapons nor the enabling technologies that would permit it to build a bomb, and that a nuclear-armed Iran is not a trivial problem for its neighbors or for the United States. And he wrote this before outlining a strategy of close regional political and security cooperation with allies in the Gulf as an alternative to preventive war. Uh, That is, Professor Posen wanted to use American alliance military and and military commitments in order to contain a potential nuclear Iran and to deter further nuclear proliferation. And if someone who is is oriented towards the strategy of restraint, as Barry Posen, who wrote a book with that title, takes the problem of nuclear proliferation that seriously, uh, I think you can be assured that the rest of the Washington consensus will take it very seriously indeed. Um, And in fact, I would say that one of the central claims of our extant strategy of primacy is that American alliance and military commitments are in fact critical tools for halting nuclear proliferation, and that the willingness of a strategy of restraint to loosen or abandon these commitments comes with considerable non-proliferation costs. Uh, And I argue that primacy's basic argument on this score can be broken up into three subsidiary claims, uh, which is that, first of all, its advocates claim that proliferation is driven primarily and most decisively by security concerns. That is, states want to acquire nuclear weapons because they feel insecure, usually because other states near them have nuclear weapons. Secondly, a little proliferation goes a long way. Uh, Advocates of primacy usually believe in the proliferation domino theory. Uh, Once a nuclear domino falls, other states nearby are bound to also acquire nuclear weapons. And third, American power, through its alliance network and through its military commitments, has certain dampening properties of international anarchy. Uh, that is, it tamps down on security dilemmas in regional politics, which reduces the desire for nuclear acquisition among regional states. Uh, and through its alliance management, uh, it has the ability to restrain its partners and halt or impede their nuclear programs and progress towards a bomb. Uh, And so the point of the essay I wrote, which I I mostly did deliver, although did not quite complete, um, was basically to review the literature uh, among political scientists on nuclear proliferation with a view to examining these three claims— uh, and to see exactly where the state of our knowledge is with regard to them. Uh, and my conclusions are basically that while at the beginning of sort of the proliferation literature in the late 1980s, uh, these claims were sort of more or less accepted as commonly true, uh, the literature has decisively moved away from them while the policy debate has not. Um, and while there are some interesting exceptions to this trend, uh, the, the – the, overall, sense you get from the literature, uh, is that this problem is not one that either uh, requires or will necessarily be well-managed by American commitments. Uh, and so the potential costs of a strategy of restraint in proliferation terms are probably much less than are commonly uh, bruited about by the advocates of primacy. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically give you a brief summary of where I think the literature has gone. Uh, and its implications for the strategy of primacy and restraint. Um, and then I'm going to give you what I think are the best counter-arguments, the best sort of voices of dissent from the emerging literature that might buttress a strategy of primacy. Um, and then I'm going to give you sort of my more nuanced take on what I think those strongest arguments actually show. Um, and at that point, I'll probably either trail off uh, or I'll be out of time Uh, But if I have a few minutes left over, I'll give you sort of my take on what I think the key cases of alliance restraint uh, and nuclear proliferation show us um, from the past and what that implies for American strategy. Uh, So what what does the literature actually say about security concerns and nuclear proliferation uh, and about sort of the domino theory of proliferation? Um, Well, I think that uh, the Sort of nuclear theorist Jacques Hyman summarizes the literature very well when he where he says when he says, quote, "Today, the overwhelming majority of scholarly work on nuclear proliferation argues that states do not directly respond to the international environment in making their nuclear weapons choices, but rather that they filter security challenges through one or more domestic prisms. And moreover, he and others conclude that proliferation decisions are, quote, actually not, highly contingent on what other states decide. Therefore, proliferation tomorrow will probably remain as rare as proliferation today, with no single instance of proliferation causing a cascade of new nuclear weapons states. Um, And if you go through the literature, and I won't... You know, repeat it voluminously to you, but a number of different theories have emerged that seek to basically uh, put domestic concerns of one sort or another at the heart of the proliferation process and interpret security concerns in a domestic lens. Um, so for instance, Hyman's himself stresses the importance of particular conceptions of ni- national identity among individual leaders, um, others have stressed the economic orientation of different ruling coalitions within potential proliferants. Um, the structure of national bureaucracies, both in the number of their veto players uh, and in sort of their legal rational characteristics uh, versus neo-patrimonial characteristics, appear to have a great deal of effect on nuclear weapons programs. Uh, and finally, many people have pointed to the importance of the of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, its norms, and its enforcement mechanisms. Uh, And so the the bottom line here is that all of these theories have moved away from kind of the simple security model that used to be held up as the explanation for why states end up with nuclear weapons and why they don't. Um, And I think that the implications of this are pretty obvious, but I I don't think they've been fully appreciated uh, in the debate uh, at the grand strategic level, um, which is that, first of all, proliferation will probably remain rare even if security threats were to rise in the world. Uh, as one author puts it, quote, the basic fact of the history of nuclear proliferation is the large and fast-growing number of nuclear weapons-capable states contrasted with the small and slow-growing number of actual nuclear weapons states. Um, Moreover, uh, the variables which the literature now emphasizes are big, slow-moving, and difficult to manipulate— Um, and certainly difficult to manipulate with American alliance commitments. Um, So, for instance, it's very unlikely that American alliances are going to change the identity of particular individuals or the entire economic basis of a ruling coalition. Um, Moreover, uh, the literature heavily emphasizes enormous internal constraints on proliferation, even when there's considerable demand for the bomb. So for instance, a bureaucracy that is both highly centralized and highly professionalized seems to be an absolute requirement uh, for nuclear acquisition, and this is not an easy condition to meet. There are many other hurdles as well. Um, Finally, there's been a decisive turn away from nuclear dominoes um, that implies that a little proliferation will not, in fact, go a long way. Um, As Cato's own John Mueller puts it, um, predictions of nuclear dominoes have shown a want of prescience that approaches the monumental, even the pathological. Fear of a nuclear tipping point continues to flourish despite the fact that it has thus far proven to be almost entirely wrong. So uh, what I think this all amounts to is that if the center of gravity in the proliferation literature is correct, then the first two claims of primacy are extremely dubious. Uh, That is, proliferation is not driven primarily and decisively by security concerns, and tipping points are unlikely. Um, And so therefore, even if regional insecurity were to increase, it's not necessarily the case that we would see a bonanza of new nuclear acquisition. Um, However, there is... Some very recent revisionist literature by young scholars that challenges the consensus that I've just summarized for you. Um, And I actually think it's pretty good. It's of high quality. It's worth taking seriously. Um, And so I'd just like to summarize it briefly for you, um, give you my kind of take on it, and then I'll conclude. Um, And so there are are two pieces in particular that stand out. Um, One is a new theory of of nuclear acquisition by Nuno Montiero and Alexandra Debs from Yale University. Um, And their model has many moving parts, which I won't attempt to do justice to here. But the central claims are these, which is that states proliferate when they have both the opportunity and the willingness to acquire nuclear weapons, and that the central constraint on their willingness is whether they believe that acquiring weapons will improve their power position sufficiently to offset the considerable costs of a nuclear program, while the central constraint on their opportunity is whether the cost of a preventive war to their adversaries is greater than the corresponding decline in their adversary's power position caused by the proliferation. Um, And what this all amounts to is that a number of factors influence this calculus of costs and benefits that takes place over a multi-year process. And most interesting for our purposes is that they theorize explicitly about the effect of American or other alliances on these decisions. right? Uh, And they note that um, alliances can decrease the willingness of states to to get nuclear weapons if their senior partners make credible security guarantees. But they can also increase the opportunity of states to get nuclear weapons if senior partners make security guarantees that do not satisfy their protégés but do help increase their capabilities or otherwise deter their adversaries from preventive war. Um, Similarly, uh, there's another, I think, important piece of literature uh, by uh, by a young student out of MIT, uh, go engineers, um, who argues that, Basically, the proliferation domino theory is sort of a self defeating theory, which is it's actually true, but policymakers have been so concerned about it, they've made it false. Right. So all our evidence for why it doesn't exist is actually because we we've made it not be true. Um, And I think there's there's he presents a bunch of evidence to show that, in fact, policymakers have been working hard in order to prevent what he calls reactive proliferation. So whenever some state tests, uh, policymakers move the policy apparatus into action in an attempt to tamp down potential reactions from other states, right? Um, So I think basically both of these are work that's very much worth taking seriously, even from people like me who would prefer a more restrained grand strategy. Um, And they would appear uh, to help revive a couple of the central claims of primacy. Um, However, I'll just conclude by saying that uh, I think that this work actually also underscores several classic claims made about alliance and military commitments by advocates of restraint, um, particularly the work by Montiero and Debs. Um, So, for instance, uh, their suggestions about alliances actually show how alliances often facilitate proliferation, um, which is it's very hard to convince your partners that you're Guarantee is credible, but it's much easier to convince their adversaries that your guarantee is credible. So if you're making promises to your friends, they're not likely to believe you, but your adversary is likely to believe you. And so they're likely to be able to proliferate on the back of your security guarantee. Uh, And I think if you look at nuclear history, you'll see that most of the proliferation that occurs occurs when there are basically loose kinds of security commitments that the potential proliferate is able to benefit from. Um, Moreover, I think they also show that strong allies will be able to credibly engage in extortive behavior from their patrons, um, which is that the only way to actually get your partner not to proliferate is to bribe your partner if they're sufficiently strong to go it alone. Um, and they're going to be able to credibly demand more bribes, uh, even if they don't actually mean it. Um, finally, uh, the preventive war constraint they talk about means that weak allies are going to be constrained whether or not they're actually abandoned. Um, and so this would suggest to me that, you know, it might be worth abandoning a few allies uh, pour and les autres, um, which is that you know, uh, if you if you show uh, people that you're serious about your non-proliferation policy, uh, even highly determined states will sit up and take notice about them. Um, So, I'm I'm running out of time, so I'm going to wrap up there, but I'll just tell you that my basic conclusions are that the overwhelming majority of the research on nuclear proliferation would suggest to me that the key causal claims of the Primacy Grand Strategy uh, are on at least somewhat shaky ground, much shakier uh, than the debate would have you believe, Um, and even the strongest pieces of research Uh, that have been to date advanced that would support the claims of primacy, um, I think also have contravening points that cut in favor of restraint. Um, In short, I think that the consequences uh, in proliferation terms of adopting a strategy of restraint uh, are considerably smaller than most people estimate, uh, and we would do well to take that into consideration uh, as we carry on the debate on grand strategy. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Brendan. Uh, now we'll hear from Eugene Gold. Uh
3: Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for, for coming. Uh, I look forward to a good day of talking about restraints. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk about um, security dilemmas and spirals and alliance politics. So security dilemmas and spirals are... Um, uh, international relations theory speak, uh, um, and uh, it's not the easiest uh, 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 connection to make in a in a Washington policy audience. It's not how people in Washington talk, but I think it's a useful lens for helping us understand the dynamics of the alliances the United States has and why they're actually um, uh, not, not only not very successful tools for promoting American security today, but actually um, have real costs for American security. Right. So that sort of turning on the head that what what, uh, uh, Ben introduced our uh, restraint way of thinking is that sometimes alliances are valuable for particular reasons as a tool towards the ends of American security. I think that's a very uh, a good way of thinking about it. And if, in fact, our current alliances, because of security dilemma and spiral dynamics, reduce American security, then we should um, stop those alliances, right? And that builds the case for restraint. Um, so that's sort of the, the uh, my goal in the next 15 minutes is to try to explain these terms and how they help us understand. Um, why our current alliance structure is not good for the United States. So um, the security dilemma uh, is a fact of life in international politics. Um, sometimes it's more intense than others, but the idea of security dilemma is that any country trying to defend itself when it, when it builds some, some military capability purely for defense, not, not intending to conquer other countries, um, creates uh, the potential to threaten other countries as well or to harm other countries as well. There's something um, uh, inherent about military capability that even if you have the best of intentions of of only defending yourself, um, other countries have reason to fear that if you changed your mind, they they, they could get attacked. You could use that military capability to attack them. And so as a result of That situation, the fact that when you create military capability to defend yourself, you inherently threaten other countries, they then react to that by having to create more military capability of their own to defend against your military capability. And so this is how the security dilemma leads to a spiral, an interaction between countries where um, countries that that are thinking purely defensively lead to Uh, continuing and escalating investments going back and forth because, of course, when the second country reacting to your initial defense investment invests more in its military capability, you get a little more scared yourself, and so you build some more, and that scares them some more, so they build some more, and you go back and forth escalating in a, a sort of a dangerous potential arms race, or it could even get worse. You start to think of each other as scary instead of as friendly. And allegedly, this, this dynamic, which is always true, is something that is, is profoundly um, understood, although not always phrased. It's not always called a security dilemma. In fact, the U.S. alliance structure that's built up around the world, allegedly, if you, if you listen to people talk about it or read the National Security Strategy of the United States, which uh, the, the uh, White House helpfully puts out somewhat regularly, um, uh, uh, allegedly, uh, our alliances are meant to ameliorate the spiral dynamic. So because there is a security dilemma, the United States would like to tamp down the pressure of that action-reaction cycle by extending alliance protection to other countries to help them not start the spiral, to help them not react too much um, uh, or invest too much in their own defense, which would trigger uh, a spiral of action and reaction. And so the theory of primacy, the theory that says in our primacist strategy, we should extend alliances to lots of other countries actually makes two claims about the security dilemma. The first is that our alliances have a reassuring role in the world, that US allies feel less need to build up, less need to invest in defense because they think they can rely on the United States and that when they build less, when they, when, they, when they choose to rely on the United States instead of investing themselves, they don't trigger the spiral dynamic. Their potential adversaries don't then invest. And so our reassurance is meant to reduce pressure to start the spiral. The second claim is actually a little bit in tension with that, but it's directed towards the adversaries. And slightly different people emphasize these different claims of the primacy uh, strategy. But the other claim is essentially a claim of intimidation, that the United States is so powerful that when we extend an alliance protection to somebody else, other countries, their potential adversaries will understand there's nothing they can do. They could never win the spiral against the United States because we're so much more powerful than they are that they just don't bother to try, right? So so on the one hand, our allies will feel reassured, and so they won't start the spiral. And at the same time, our enemies will feel so intimidated by the U.S. that they won't bother to spiral even if they had the inkling to start. Um, and um, There's a little sub of this, which is that they trust the United States, right? That They they feel intimidated by the United States, but they don't feel so intimidated that they really want to fight back against the United States. They think we're sort of benevolent um, uh, or not that threatening to them. But in any event, reassurance and intimidation. We reassure our allies and we intimidate their adversaries such that we tamp down the security dilemma. Now, this has has, uh, several... Substantial problems and I'm gonna I'm gonna this logic and I'm gonna talk about two of them and uh, One of them fairly briefly because uh, I think other people notably Barry have, have covered it very well uh, uh, Recently, so so um, the first one is the problem of reckless driving uh, By our allies and that's Barry's phrase and it's a and it's a, a very good um, phrase So um, and it's been exhibited lately um, in our alliance dynamic in Europe um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll quickly mention that. So, so the problem is that, that U.S. allies, when we extend our alliance, um, they assume that nothing can go wrong because Uncle Sugar will come bail them out of any trouble they get into. And um, uh, so they take provocative actions, right? They're, they're risk-tolerant. Um, in in a, another way of thinking about this, another kind of academic-y jargon phrase is there's the problem of moral hazard, that when you don't bear the cost of your actions, when somebody else bears the cost, say an insurance company, you tend to take some risks. And alliances provide some level of that kind of protection which enables moral hazard or enables reckless driving. And um, uh, the, the ex- one example of this recently has been... You, Western policy, particularly Western European policy, with respect to Ukraine, right? Where, where um, assuming, not even thinking about the security impacts very hard, there was a, uh, uh, just a thought in Western Europe that of course we should spread our market and democratic institutions east to, to Ukraine. Um, uh, of course, if you thought about it for a minute, you would know, you would know that A, that's a little scary to the Russians and B, that it's likely to tear Ukraine apart, right? Because within Ukraine, there are a set of people who generally think this is a good idea, they wanna join the West, and there's also a set of people who are more Eastern looking and tend to to wanna spend time with the Russians. And if you force them to pick As opposed to having a relatively hands-off attitude, if if you're recklessly driving and you're telling them, why don't you pick the West, there are going to be a bunch of people who don't like that, and you are going to tear the Ukrainian society apart, you are going to tear the government apart, and of course, activate um, a Russian reaction. We do a spiral. The West is coming for Ukraine, Russia's going to react by building up in Ukraine, and you get that spiral dynamic of back and forth, because now Europe is scared of Russia, and Um, So we've triggered this back-and-forth dynamic. And um, uh, the ironic thing about this is exactly, um, this is a a pretty clear case of reckless driving, where um, if you look at opinion polls in Europe, I found this opinion poll pretty shocking. It was uh, 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 from last summer, I think it was a Pew poll. I I should have looked up the exact site. But um, uh, in all of the European NATO member countries, European NATO member countries. Um, Majorities of people expect that the United States will fight to defend them if they get in trouble. And they think it's right that the United States should fight to defend them. But none of them think they should fight to defend them. They think it's the US job to defend uh, them. That's what NATO's about. NATO's about how the United States is gonna come bail them out, bail their chestnuts out of the fire. Um, And specifically, they think the United States should be willing to fight over East, the eastern uh, fringe of NATO, so the Baltic states, for example, that um, that it's our job. So we have we have provided the environment to encourage European reckless driving, and it has been. It's not just in the governments; the people have internalized this. It seems very dangerous. The other argument uh, about that I would put forth or make against the sec- the. the primacy ameliorating security dilemma argument is um, uh, an argument about uh, there being actually multiple potential spiral dynamics in international politics. And and we should be asking um, not does the U.S. presence potentially ameliorate a spiral, does the U.S. alliance ameliorate a spiral, but which spiral that could happen in the world is worse? For the United States and for international security. So when the United States defends a country, defends an ally, defends a protege, we create a potential spiral dynamic between ourselves and that adversary and that ally's potential adversary. So if we extend our defense um, uh, umbrella to Japan or Taiwan, because we want to reassure them that they don't have to defend themselves against China, we create a potential spiral dynamic between the US and China. If the US were not defending Japan or Taiwan, there is still a security dilemma. There is still a potential spiral dynamic. It's a spiral between, say, Japan and China instead of a spiral between the United States and China. And um, most people take the, the view that because China and Japan, say, have a nasty history and Uh, have nationalist uh, uh, parties within their countries that don't like each other, that the spiral between Japan and China is very dangerous because these countries are emotional in their interactions with each other and and have have shown a predilection to hostility. And so they think it's better to have a U.S.-China spiral than a Japan-China spiral, right? They think the United States should, should... Tamp down, should do whatever it takes to tamp down the tendency for Japan and China to to have this strategic interaction, even at the risk of the US um, uh, picking a fight with China. Um, And I think this is exactly backwards for a couple of reasons. Um, So the first thing is, from the US perspective, we're talking about US strategy here. It's pretty clear, just on first principles, that a spiral involving the United States is more dangerous for the United States than a spiral involving two other countries, right? So if we are getting into an arms race with China, that should worry Americans more because that's us getting into an adversarial, conflictual relationship with another country that could be big and mean, right? They might not be that big and mean yet, but someday they could be. And so from just a, this is US foreign policy perspective, we should start with the idea that Let's think about what's more dangerous to the US. Now that seems a little callous about the world. Like I don't think we should encourage the world to go to hell. Um, uh, I think we should be friendly with the world. We should trade with the world. We should have lots of interaction with the world. I think we should wish the world well, peace and development and all kinds of good things. So I don't actually think the world will go to hell. I think for international security, it's also better if the, you know, the better spiral is the Japan-China spiral than the US-China spiral. And, and that's because of, of two things. The first is the US is much bigger and more powerful than Japan or Taiwan. So if you were in China's perspective, thinking about which country you want Which country would scare you more, would create a bigger action-reaction cycle in that security dilemma, would lead you that when they invested in international, in their domestic, in their military effort, would lead you to react by upping your military effort more? If you're China and you see the U.S. adding to its military effort, you might be more scared that the U.S. is going on the offensive against you than if you see Taiwan, investing or Japan investing in their military. So you know that the people of Taiwan you have a strong disagreement with or the people of Japan have a terrible history and those are real problems for you. So you think if if Taiwan could use force against us, they they might. But you also know that Taiwan is a pip. Taiwan is small. Taiwan is never going to conquer China, right? China does not need to worry, does not need to react when Taiwan invests by investing a lot in their military. They can't trigger the spiral. Taiwan can't trigger as aggressive a spiral as the U.S. can. And the second key point here is the kind of weapons that Japan and Taiwan would buy to defend themselves absent the U.S. alliance. When the U.S. says we're going to defend Taiwan or Japan, we sail into into the sea there with forces that are Offensively have offensive potential. A U.S. carrier battle group or a U.S. missile submarine that could defend Japan or Taiwan also has the potential to attack mainland China. That's a scary thing from China. They're going to react to that, right? But Japan and Taiwan can defend themselves using anti-access area denial technology. They can build a porcupine of missiles to keep China out anti-ship missiles, anti-ship cruise missiles, anti-aircraft missiles that don't give Taiwan and Japan much potential to attack China. So they're much better off. They could have a defensive defense instead of an offensive defense. And a defensive defense would trigger the spiral less, would lead to a less intense security dilemma. So even if these countries hate each other, the military technical context means that the spiral between Japan and China is less dangerous than the spiral between the U.S. and China. And so as a result, both for U.S. interests and for global security, for trying to avoid that intense spiral, we're better off backing away from the U.S.-Japan alliance or the U.S.-Taiwan quasi-alliance and letting them defend themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Goltz. Uh, now we're
1: going to be hearing from Josh Shifrinson. Um, much like the Europeans, uh, Professor Edelstein is going to free ride and allow Josh to present their uh, findings um, and maybe jump in at the end with a few comments. Uh, so please uh, join me in welcoming Josh.
4: And considering this is a paper about entrapment, uh, my job is to make sure David has to get involved by doing a sufficiently poor job that he has to stand up. So following up very nicely on Ben, Eugene, Brendan, other comments thus far, this is a paper about the risk of entrapment in US grand strategy and the risk of entrapment in US alliance politics today. Uh, Unsurprisingly, the debate over grand strategy, over primacy or deep engagement or the strategy of restraint that we're discussing today, hinges in large part on the value of US security commitments around the world. Uh, which is itself, in many ways, a debate over the risk of U.S. entrapment into foreign conflicts that it has no interest in. Uh, The definition, just putting it uh, broadly out there, for deep engagers, the value of U.S. alliances is really stark. There's a lot of benefit from alliances. As Brendan laid out, it aids reassurance, it abets U.S. influence around the world, and the costs of alliances are manageable. Work by Michael Beckley, Bill Woolford, Stephen Brooks, Hints that states rarely get entrapped into one another's conflicts. So why should the US worry about this? Uh, for restrainers, on the other hand, it's really the opposite. Sure, there are some benefits, the US gains some influence of a generic sort over its allies, but the costs are significantly larger. Uh, not, it's not only the case that you risk inserting your own yourself into a spiral, as Eugene laid out. But there's a risk that allies themselves uh, engage in feckless or reckless behavior that drags you back in. So at the end of the day, in large part, the question of what is the cost of an alliance, what is the risk of entrapment inside of an alliance, is at the crux of the debate over a US grand strategy. And as I hinted, there's a fundamental debate between premises deep engagers on the one hand and restrainers on the other hand over how this shakes out. Um, we're not here to say that one side or the other is ubiquitously or always right, but that both sides can be right under different conditions. That's the theoretical takeaway. But the policy takeaway is that for U.S. grant strategy today, the risk of entrapment is not negligible. It's, in fact, pretty large, and it's getting larger. So that's the big policy takeaway. Um, so what do we do in this paper? We, we, we try to outline and then apply what we are calling a theory of entrapment. Uh, And we just want to note that there are three different ways when people talk about entrapment, how entrapment can occur. Um, On the one hand, there's the classic concern, which is that one state needs another state to maintain a, a viable balance of power against a common adversary. And therefore, if the first state worries that the second state is dissipating or going away or doing something reckless, I, the first state, have to go along whatever crazy activity the second state is engaging in, even if I don't have an interest in that, val- in that issue at hand. That's kind of the classic Thucydides example. This is the concern that uh, scholars raise about how World War I occurred. Different states were chain ganged, were entrapped into one of those conflicts. That's kind of a simple model. There's also the model that Eugene mentioned a few moments ago of moral hazard, which is I give a security commitment to another state, and that other state engages in its own feckless behavior because it now feels overly secure, that's one aspect, or engages in even equally feckless and reckless behavior, it engages in bad driving because it's insecure and was a deep in the U.S. commitment. But in either case, the fact of giving a security commitment at time one increases the risk of a conflict by that party at time two that I then have to get involved for whatever reason. And then finally, uh, and this is a less IR-ish when more of a domestic politics argument, it's that entrapment can occur as states manipulate each other's perceptions of interests. We know that elites aren't, uh, that U.S. elites listen to their foreign counterparts, states engage in diplomacy all the time, foreign interest groups go to work on the bureaucracies and on the domestic agendas of different states. And as that process plays out, state interests can be redefined. So that what even though I may not objectively need another state for a balance of power purpose or for a security purpose, I end up believing that that other state needs me for some unknown reason. So those are three different mechanisms by which entrapment can occur. But when do they occur, right? That's, that's really the key question here. It's the key question for figuring out what the sh- uh, state of American grand strategy is. Well, we, we can break this down to a couple of different categories. Uh, on the one hand, you can imagine a world where there are many great powers, and this is a world much like the pre-World War I scenario, where entrapment looks really big, and entrapment risks are large, and they're pretty pervasive. States need one another in that environment. Great powers need one another in that environment for the, to maintain the balance of power. If France doesn't have Russia against Germany, France is really not in a good place vis-a-vis Germany. So whatever Russia engages in, France has to play along. That's a simple scenario. Uh, then there's the Cold War scenario, a situation where there are only two great powers. And I should pause here to note that even though deep engagers and primacists are focused heavily on the post-Cold War world, they draw much of their evidence from the Cold War world uh, to, make their, to make their empirical argument. Now, why is that problematic? Well, because cold, the Cold War world where there are only two great powers, there should be almost no entrapment that occurs. Not only do do each of the two states have reasons to think of the other side as scary and big and not value the allies enough, the allies aren't necessary to maintain a balance of power. But at the same time, the moral hazard argument goes way, way down. And furthermore, uh, interests are already defined globally, which more or less precludes one's allies from uh, manipulating one's definition of interests. So in in a bipolar or two great power world, Uh, entrapment is very low, meaning that if we're going to infer anything about how the world looks today, drawing evidence from the Cold War world looks problematic at best. So finally, what about a world where there's just one big dog, where there's just one great power, a world like the U.S. lives in today and has lived in for the last 25 years? Well, this is a situation where the risk of entrapment is somewhere in between these two, the multipolar, the several great power story, and the two great power story but also gets larger over time. Now, why is this the case? Well, like in a bipolar world or a two great power world, the US doesn't need allies to maintain security for itself. But at the same time, it's extended security commitments around the world and inherited these, giving local actors an ability to engage in moral hazard. And because a single great power doesn't have external security risks, the ability of other states to to engage in interest redefinition and interest manipulation is really quite large. So just at a baseline level, a single great power world is a world where there's some risk of entrapment simply because the single great power can and and might. At the same time, because it's really an awesome world to be in when you're the only great power around, there are very few external security risks to to yourself. uh, The value of allies actually goes up over time as other states, as other peer competitors appear potentially on the horizon. So as as your worries over the loss of one's dominance go up, so do the value of one's allies and therefore the risks of balance of power issues, balance of power concerns leading to entrapment. So the net result is that the world in which we live in today is actually a world where entrapment risks are quite large and the cost benefits of alliances are not negligible at all. There are, in fact, quite a lot of risks involved in the current US alliance patterns. And we see this in East Asia and around the world today. I won't mention Europe, because Eugene already intimated that, already talked about it a little bit. But at least so far as East Asia is, is concerned, we see allied efforts, our interest redefinition, and moral hazard all the darn time. When we talk about the pivot, we talk about alliances challenging, or ally leaders challenging very openly, US credibility, and daring the US not to act. As the U.S. has become more heavily invested in East Asia, we actually see states such as the Philippines, Vietnam, and Japan more inclined to challenge China over East Asian island disputes. It's hard to imagine as uh, these small states picking a fight with a big dog, without, like a, with a regional big actor like China, without thinking that the U.S. might come over the horizon and uh, pull their chestnuts out of the fire. So as a result, not only do we live in a world where entrapment is around us, But as uh, the rise of China proceeds, or if the rise of China proceeds, or if U.S. power wanes in a relative sense, and other countries look like they can make a good stand against the U.S., that's gonna cause the risk of entrapment to go up over time. So the net result here is that we live, the restrained argument that alliances are not costless and that in fact uh, alliances generate some harm is quite compelling. It may not be compelling in a different world, it may not be compelling if there were several other great powers, but if there were only one other great power, but the fact of the matter is, we live in a world where restraint has attraction as a way of a adumbrating, of reducing these concerns over alliance entrapment. And with that, I'll step down unless David, uh, anything? Cool.
1: Thank you, Josh. Uh, now I'll turn it over to Professor Rhodes to comment on all the presentations.
5: Cato and these uh, Krieg lights are not my uh, usual setting. Usually, when I'm serving as a discussant, it's to a much smaller academic audience. Last night, when I was putting these remarks together, I was thinking, wow, it's truly amazing to have a panel on which I've got three great papers which so clearly fit together and which clearly agree with each other, reinforce each other's arguments, and which make a strong case for something that I believe in myself. (laughs) And then I realize, oh yeah, I'm going over to Cato, and it's a conference on restraint in American foreign policy. So maybe it's not quite so surprising uh, as it would be anywhere else in this zip code that uh, we've got three papers here that actually do make sense and do fit together. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here when I say the arguments here about restraint and why restraint makes sense in American foreign policy um, are worth paying attention to. So we've got three separate but interconnecting arguments all clearly presented. What can a discussant do? Um, I think the one thing that I can... I can add to this discussion, and the one cautionary note that I, can, uh, that I can provide is not by way of criticism of these papers, because they don't suffer from this flaw, but by way of caution to you as you're thinking about what these papers are saying and thinking about what the evidence is in these papers. I think it's important to keep what they're saying in perspective and not push it beyond what they see the evidence as actually saying. Uh, I was looking for an analogy again last night, and I was thinking, well, the obvious analogy is you've got to save the baby when you throw out the bathwater. But then I was thinking about the pursuit of primacy and the pursuit of liberal hegemony, and I realized that's not, that's not a bathtub. That's a swimming pool. It's a swimming pool that is very expensive to maintain. It's a swimming pool that is filled with lots of ugly things floating on the surface or down on the bottom. But even as we look for ways to get rid of that breeding place for the Zika virus and breeding place for all sorts of ugly things, even as we look for ways to drain that swimming pool, I think it's important to recognize that there are some children in that swimming pool that are worth saving. There are some policy aspects, there are some elements within that program that involves a a larger pursuit of primacy, a larger pursuit of liberal hegemony that we don't want to flush away. And again, I think if you read these papers carefully, you'll see that the authors very much recognize that. But I want to underscore some of the things that are in these papers that suggest we need to be careful while we're moving towards restraint and not view restraint as a reason to throw everything in policy out. I want to start with Eugene's paper. Um, and I actually want to start by by saying there is even more good stuff to what Eugene is arguing than he he emphasized here. That, in fact, his argument goes much further and is much stronger than he was able to suggest in 15 minutes. So I actually want to start by picking up on where Eugene left off. One of the things Eugene was saying at the end was that as we think about security dilemmas out there, and as we recognize the way that America's pursuit of primacy and its pursuit of liberal hegemony has gotten us caught up in these security dilemmas where we don't want to be, where we're getting entrapped in those security dilemmas, one of the ways out of it is simply not to be involved in those relationships. But the other way is to recognize that security dilemmas don't always exist and that security dilemmas are not all equally dangerous. And this, again, Eugene was touching on, but let me push a little bit further. What causes a security dilemma is that you can't tell the difference between the steps that I'm taking to defend myself and the steps I might be taking because I secretly want to kill Eugene. And because Eugene can't tell that I'm just trying to defend myself, he is forced to react. Now, in general, there's nothing I can do that's going to be purely and entirely defensive. Eugene will always be worried. But there are some kinds of armaments, there are some kinds of alliances, there are some kinds of foreign policy that will worry Eugene less, where it's clear that what I'm really probably trying to do is to defend myself and that I really do not have hostile intent and what I'm acquiring and the alliances I'm building are not well designed to attack Eugene, they're well designed to defend me and to defend my interests. The other thing that's important to recognize in security dilemmas is that sometimes, given the weapons and alliances I build, it is easier to attack than to defend. And if it's easier to attack than to defend, given the weapons and the alliances that Eugene and I have, that's creating a situation in which, even though neither of us may want to attack the other, out of pure fear, we may have to attack. Or out of pure fear, we may have to build a huge arms race. On the other hand, if the technology and the alliance structure permits it to be easier to defend than to attack, then both of us are going to be reasonably confident. You could imagine a situation in which both of us have sufficient forces to allow us to feel secure at the same time because defense is so much easier than offense. Now, one of the things Eugene has elsewhere noted is that in terms of conventional military technology, We are being pushed, or we can push ourselves into an era in which it's fairly easy, not completely easy, but fairly easy to tell the difference between defensive things and offensive things, and we could move ourselves into an era in which defense is easier than offense. Now, this would obviously be in America's interest. It may not be in the interest of the American military, nor may it be in the self-interest of the American defense industrial establishment but it's clearly in America's interest to move down this road towards more defensive posture and more uh, defense, clearly defensive weapons. And it's in our interest to push our allies down the same road. And so it's not simply a question of do we beg out of the alliance we have with, uh, with Japan or with Taiwan and have them have their security dilemma with China. I think it's possible to think of constructive American foreign policies that don't simply abandon uh, Japan and Taiwan to a security dilemma, but it's possible to think of engaged American foreign policies, not ones aimed at primacy or hegemony, but engaged American foreign policies that actually encourage this move towards a defensive dominant world. Now, at the same time, though, it's also clear there's another another baby or another swimmer in this, in this swimming pool that needs to be saved. That is, while we are moving towards an ear world in which conventional weapons are defense dominant, where it's easier in a conventional war to defend yourself than to attack, that's probably not true when we're talking about WMD, when we're talking about uh, uh, terrorism using primitive technology, or when we're worried about cyber attacks. These are areas in which Again, it's hard to tell, but it looks like offense may still be dominant. And what that means, to protect ourselves in these common areas, the the, the cybersphere, or to protect ourselves at home, it still may be logically desirable for us to have some alliances and for us to have some engagement abroad, not in order to control and dominate the world. We can agree that's, in this room, I think we can agree that's a terrible swimming pool to have. Uh, You know, we need to drain that. But... There are some purposes for some of the alliances and some of the the military uh, in, industrial things that we are doing, but again, we need to think about it really carefully. Um, and I think, by the way, that that ties in really nicely when we're talking about a robust network of, uh, of alliances. It ties in very very nicely with uh, David uh, David's and Joshua's excellent paper. Again, three excellent papers. Now. As David and Joshua note, one inherent feature in any alliance is the possibility of entrapment. And much of what their paper drives at is trying to figure out when that uh, danger is going to be high and when that danger is going to be low. Um, Because, again, some alliances have some value, and some alliances have a fairly low risk of entrapment but they provide great benefits in terms of protecting us here in this country or protecting things in the international co- uh, commons that we want protected. Some alliances do those things well at a fairly low risk of, risk of entrapment. And Again, when you're thinking about entrapment, one thing that we need to focus on is exactly what entrapment means. And entrapment really is very, very simple. And I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but just to, to put it in words that I understand better, If in the absence of an alliance, I would prefer not to take costly action X and I would rationally not take that action X because it is costly, but then when I enter into an alliance, I find that rationally to avoid paying what might be still higher prices out there, I now find it attractive to take this costly action X and I rationally end up taking this costly action X, that's entrapment. That by being in the alliance, by being in the alliance, something changes. Either the behavior of my now ally changes, or the behavior of the adversary changes, or my own interests somehow change because I'm in that alliance. And what that does is it changes whether or not I can rationally avoid doing a painful and costly thing. Or now, given that alliance, I need and want, actually, to take that painful painful step. Now, when is it likely that there will be this entrapment? Well, one of the most obvious things that we can focus on is the alliances we want to avoid, the ones that we're most likely to be entrapped in, are the alliances where, actually, our interests and our allies' interests diverge substantially because it's in those situations where by allying with that partner, we are more likely to have to take steps that we were not planning or desiring otherwise to take. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't worry about being entrapped by our alliance with Canada. And I don't worry about being trapped by our alliance with Britain. And I don't worry very much about being trapped by our alliance with Germany or Australia, because frankly, Our interests and Canadian interests are very, very similar. And our interests in British and German and Australian, yes, they depart somewhat, but they're fairly similar. Where you see the risk of entrapment, the alliances that are likely to be dangerous are the ones that in pursuit of primacy, in pursuit of liberal hegemony, we've entered into alliances with folks whose interests we don't very much share. Whether it's because of their domestic situation or because of their political philosophy or because of some historic enmities that they have that we don't have, for any of a variety of reasons, we don't actually share most of or some important interests that they have. I mean, classic examples of this, we got involved a long time ago in an alliance with Chiang Kai-shek. Now, we didn't share many of Chiang Kai-shek's interests, and as a result, we found ourselves getting entrapped in a lot of his, his problems. Some of us in this room have argued that, you know, there's a considerable divergence between US interests and Israel's interests. And because of that, our alliance with Israel has a danger of getting us entrapped. So the first thing we need to be aware of is that what's dangerous about alliances is when we enter into alliances with folks whose interests we don't share. When George Washington warns against entangling alliances and when John Quincy Adams warns against being involved in the charnel house that is European politics. He's warning, they're warning, against becoming involved with states whose interests are different than us. Now, I'm not in favor of lots of alliances. I I, I don't like alliances more than most of us in this room. But what I'm suggesting is we don't throw alliances out with the bathwater. What we need to do is think about uh, allies, which ones matter. And, of course, the critical issues are not Canada or Pick pick the country that we're allied with that you think we have least in common. The real interesting questions, the tough questions, the questions on which the folks in the State Department and in the White House earn their salary or should earn their salary is figuring out those alliances that aren't so clear. Is our alliance with Estonia one that will entrap us? Well, that depends entirely on whether we conclude we have an interest in preventing Russian expansion and preventing the destabilization of Central and Northern Europe that would follow from Russian expansion. And it depends on whether the Estonians figure they have an, an interest in provoking a showdown with the Russians rather than living under the lifelong threat of possible Russian invasion. So again, it depends on figuring this out, depends on really understanding your interests. If you understand your interests and are able to understand your allies' interests, you can avoid entrapment. You can stay away from the alliances that are gonna get you caught in doing things that you would prefer not to do. Okay, I need to hustle along because I don't wanna give short shrift to Brendan. Um, Another great paper. Um, Obviously, uh, the United States has an interest in preventing nuclear wars. Um, Obviously, we have an interest in preventing not simply nuclear wars that target us, but given what we know and increasingly know about the climate change that would follow from a nuclear war elsewhere in the world. The fact that we know that uh, given our our best modeling, it becomes increasingly worrisome that nuclear wars between third parties would run non-trivial risks of creating environmental uh, and therefore economic and social and political damage around the world, including here in the United States. Clearly, we can agree the United States has an interest in avoiding nuclear war, we all agree. The question is, how important is reducing proliferation in reaching that goal? Because reducing proliferation isn't a goal in itself. It's, It's seen as a means of reducing the danger of nuclear war. And how much of a role can the United States play in this? Again, what Brendan points out clearly is it's difficult to make a clear connection between overarching U.S. dominance and hegemony and actually cutting down on the risks of nuclear proliferation. That it's not clear that in all cases, nuclear proliferation is triggered by security concerns. It's not clear that in all cases, there are dominoes that are are going to fall. And it's not clear that in all cases, uh, the United States could take active measures, effective measures, to reduce that security dilemma or to stop the dominoes from falling. But I think, as Brendan would agree, it's also possible that there are some cases where proliferation is motivated by security concerns. And there are some cases where there are domino effects. I mean, I think of India and Pakistan here, where clearly each decision reflects uh, the other's decision. Or we used to worry about Brazil and Argentina. Again, there are some pairs out there where if you can stop one, you're likely to slow the pressure in the other. So, again, I think what's really important here is as we move away from global military hegemony as a way of stopping proliferation, that we then start thinking about what more specific steps could we take in specific cases where we could effectively use American commitments in order to prevent proliferation uh, dangers that would be threatening to us. Thanks.
1: Well, thank you to all our panelists. Uh, now I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. Um, before you ask your question, wait to be called on. Uh, please wait for the microphone f- so those of uh, our audience members watching online can hear. And please identify yourself by name and affiliation. Up here, up front.
6: Uh, yes, uh, Dave Fitzgerald, retired Foreign Service. Um, thank you very much. I enjoyed the panel's uh, comments and uh, Um, Observations. Uh, My question is about really the management of alliances, which is kind of what state departments do and other foreign ministries around the world do. And there's uh, there seemed to be a a heavy emphasis in the presentations on the military aspects of alliances and military aspects of foreign policy. Not enough on the diplomatic aspects, the political consequences, the uh, the economic relationships, and the cultural perceptions or the manipulations of perspectives, if you want to call it that, or uh, the entire global communication environment. Uh, those are all uh, tools for the manager. And uh, it seems to me that there should be more attention to that, uh, that the it isn't simply a question of whether uh, a particular alliance still works or not, but how you use your tools to make it more uh, to keep it working, to repair it if it has to be repaired or to or to end it if it, if it's actually uh, at an end, but I didn't ca- catch that in the presentations. I wonder if anybody to, would like to expand on that'd
3: like to take that so I, I can't actually see you I'm sorry for that we've got this great podium in the way but um, so uh, uh, I, I largely agree with the with the Tenor of your comment that there's more to our relationship with other countries than our military connection to those countries. Um, but I think the alliance is fundamentally about military protection, right? So we can be friends with many countries without being allied. So so the thing that's specific about the alliance is the the mutual defense commitment, which everybody kind of understands isn't really very mutual, right? It's that the U.S., you know, Estonia is going to defend us from someone. Uh, uh, It's really us promising to defend Estonia. And so I think we're suggesting that... The United States should have many friends. Should have the kind of diplomatic relationships you're talking about. Should encourage trade, and and the State Department has a role to play in uh, a very important role in um, uh, helping us understand other countries, understanding uh, um, uh, interests, not micromanaging their politics. Right when we when we when we go from. Uh, understanding and exchange and voluntary relationships to meddling and coercion and, and uh, blanket promises of military protection, now we've moved into a, a, a different realm that that I think, at least I am, I don't want to speak for the rest of the panel, I'm saying that's probably not such a good idea for the United States. But, but the kinds of things you're talking about, about ma- maintaining a positive relationship and, and um, uh, uh, encouraging uh, you know, beneficial uh, trade, cultural exchange, all of those things, um, you know, we could do that a lot more if we um, weren't so wrapped up in these uh, um, uh, military spiral dynamics. Uh,
4: the, the the only thing I would add, uh, I think Eugene's right on the money, the only thing I would add as well is um, – Many of the issues that we've discussed in this panel also affect the content of what is being said and the, way and, uh, the nature of the conversations that occur and the perceptions that are trying to be uh, shaped by the State Department and by other actors. Uh, it seems, and I think many of us on the panel are reacting to that, that diplomats, because of the military-to-military side of the relationship and because of the defensive nature of alliances, tend to seek to reassure allies and give commitments over and over and over. And I think much of what the panel is suggesting is that sometimes diplomats such as yourself need to scare allies a little bit and not be so forthcoming. Because sometimes the way to get something out of another country is to remind them that maybe you won't be their best friend forever. And so it shapes the content of the conversations as much as as much as much their overall strategy.
1: OK, how about right here up front.
7: Hi, I'm Brian Stout with Foreign Policy Magazine. And one of the most common denominators in interstate conflicts has, um, for the past 200 years and still today, been the presence of interstate strategic rivalries pre-existing the conflict. Um, It's often something that drives a security dilemma and uh, is a direct cause of, of the war. And primacists often seek to mitigate these strategic rivalries by having the United States embrace both countries. Um, It's often not the best explanation, um, but I digress. My question is, how would a strategy of restraint seek to ameliorate strategic rivalries between countries uh, that are at each other's throats um, or have the immediate prospect of going to war?
2: Well, I can't speak for everyone who believes in a strategy of restraint, but, uh, you know, I guess I would seek to ameliorate them about the way that I learned how not to touch hot stoves, um, which is that I did it a couple of times and I decided it was bad for me. Uh, and, you know, I think part of the cost that any strategy of restraint is going to have to bear is that if there are people who are deeply engaged in security dilemmas with each other uh, and are dedicated to adversarial relationships and we're pulling back, uh, we're just going to have less leverage over those situations. Um, and because those relationships are so bad, it's often the case that we're actually facilitating bad behavior by sort of hovering over things and sort of taking away some of the negative costs from those relationships, right? And so by removing the the security blanket and making people bear those costs, you can often sometimes convince people that maybe that kind of adversarial relationship is not really in their interest. But to the extent that, both parties believe it is, it's probably one of the costs of the strategy, I think.
8: I, I, would, I would just add, I, I think it, it's no. Um, it's likely no coincidence that many of those who associate themselves with the position of restraint um, have also throughout their careers associated themselves with with the kind of approach of, of realism uh, in thinking about international politics and And one of the things that realists typically understand, not in any happy way, but with some sense of resignation, is that um, there is a limit to the ability of even the most powerful state in the world to ameliorate sort of age-old conflicts between states.
4: Uh, And I'll just jump in because, you know, I'm not going to make the case for restraint. I'm not going to make the case against primacy for a second. Uh, I'm going to challenge the prior of your question which is that the U.S. strategy of primacy uh, seeks to dampen security concerns by taking both states in existing rivalry and shake them. Uh, If that were true, then logically the U.S. would be willing to go to war with Japan for the sake of China if the situation merited, or to go to war with Germany for the sake of Russia if the situation merited. If that isn't part of U.S. grand strategy, then it's not really a strategy. Then the reassurance aspect that you're queuing to, that Primus's claim, isn't as uh, bland as primaces would have it be.
1: How about right here in the middle? Well, we'll go in the front first, and then next question behind you.
6: Uh, Warren Coates, retired from the IMF, and kudos for everybody. It was a fantastic uh, session. But it really is focused on the military aspect of alliances and so on, and I'd appreciate your, your... comments and reflections on the other dimensions of an international liberal order, uh, the rule of law internationally and trade and uh, other relationships, the WTO, the IMF itself, et cetera.
3: um, I think the the fundamental answer to your question is that I don't think the... um, International economic order, the WTO trade relationships between countries depends on u um, s military alliances u s uh, um, uh, forward military presence around the world. Countries trade with each other because there are benefits to exchange and um, they want to their, their companies want to make money their consumers want to buy stuff that are produced and you know sold by people in other countries um, and uh even under primacy, the United States doesn't, for the most part, seek to enforce the rule of law within other countries. Like occasionally, we get uppity and occupy another country and try to, um, you know, change their legal structure. But um, you know, our military forward presence isn't what protects American companies trying to do business in China. Um, uh, it we do, to some extent, protect American citizens, um, you know, uh, who are who are working in other countries and get. Um, You know, caught up in a conflict, we try to extract them and protect, you know, uh, save their lives, protect them. And, you know, that's protecting American citizens overseas under any strategies, you know, part of um, the way the United States would think about about the world, right? Um, uh, But wouldn't entail military alliances or large scale military occupations for the most part so the the kind of world order that you're talking about i think is there there is a sense of spontaneous order that 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 the that um, uh, countries acting in their own interests and companies acting in their own interests uh, produce an international economy and you would want to still negotiate treaties and try to have rules. You'd probably want to still have a WTO, um, but the WTO doesn't have its own army, right? It's, it's the U S army doesn't back the WTO it's um, uh, treaty negotiations. And that, you know, we can, the IMF has a, a role to play in the world. It's just, that's not a direct concern of American grand strategy of American military presence around the world.
8: So I think another way of, of asking this question or thinking about this question would be to say, if if the United States were to walk away from some of its military commitments, some of its alliances, what implications would that have for all the things that you were talking about in terms of sort of trade relations or the international legal order, or all these types of things, right? And I, you know, I think that's an interesting counterfactual to kind of walk through and and think about. And, you know, people like Dan Dresner have looked at sort of the economic benefits of military primacy and I think come to a sort of decidedly mixed conclusion on, on just how much the kind of military primacy matters for for sort of economic factors. But this is a slightly different question, right, which is to say, could you sort of persist in the types of trade relationships around the world that the United States prospers from and enjoys and would want to continue in the absence of the military alliances that it has. I think those who who think of themselves more kind of aligned with the restraint position would argue that that there's nothing that would would prevent that, right? I think primacists would say that the the presence of the alliance somehow kind of protects and enables these trade relations and uh, I think those are two two positions worth um, thinking through.
5: If I could just add to that, um, the usual 18th century liberal view, which has been traditional American foreign policy, has been to assume that uh, economic policy and political military policy are separable. Um, American foreign policy was traditionally aimed at trying to maximize availability of markets, um, U.S. integration into the world economy, while at the same time trying to minimize or at least hold to a very low level U.S. political and military integration into the world. Um, so the, the answer is really does depend on how much you believe these are separable policy areas. The logic of liberalism suggests that they ought to be highly separable. Um, whether or not that's correct or not, you know, we can have to muster some empirical evidence.
9: Thank you, I'm uh, Professor Wayne Glass from the University of Southern California, a former staff member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, what's lurking in my mind as you gentlemen are speaking about this issue, and probably in the minds of many here, is the status of NATO. Of course, uh, when the Soviet Union uh, dissolved in the early 90s, uh, the question was, where is NATO gonna go? So NATO was sort of searching for a mission. uh, And it came up with a, quote, new strategic concept, which essentially took away the borders of the old NATO paradigm. Uh, There's been no mention of of the status of NATO. It's the debate that's never happened, in my opinion. Uh, As we look at uh, maybe the renaissance of Cold War II lurking? Uh, And I think perhaps the time is ripe. And I'm asking the panel, is it time to reconsider, or for the public debate, to reconsider and perhaps repackage uh, NATO in a changing international environment?
3: Perhaps I wasn't entirely clear. But um, when I called NATO a bunch of reckless drivers, I, I meant that I'd like to take away their keys. Um, uh, that's Barry's line, so I'll credit him. But, but um, yeah, I mean, at least in my view of restraint, like when I was saying these alliances are bad for the United States, I meant we should gracefully wind them down. So turn NATO into NATO could be the Northeast Atlantic Treaty Organization, meaning not the United States and Canada. Um, and you know japan wants to have a relationship with other countries they can have it without us
2: yeah, i i think it's long long past too um but you know try it's like you may as well try to convince people to give up on mom and apple pie too uh, you know the, nato's really popular in this town for some reason uh you know we had a long productive relationship with it uh you know i i i I sort of think they've gotten ungrateful personally but uh yeah so i I, i'm i'm right with you any any kind of reimagining uh would be good i don't think we're ever going to really wind it down but if we could turn nato into something else that would be great um but you know your ideas are are welcome because i I don't see how it's going to (laughs) happen
1: This, this is one problem with a restraint conference, is there's too much agreement amongst our panelists. I, I would love to have a fight about NATO membership, but it's not going to happen with these panelists. Well, I'll take the
5: other side, but uh, this may not be the right right time and place for it. Jump in. Uh, I, I agree that the time is certainly right for thinking through what the interests are in this very changed world, Um, whether or not an ongoing alliance uh, with Europe, uh, Western uh, Europe, makes any sense. I'm inclined, though, to think that this is a case where uh, the benefits far exceed the costs. Um, I I respect my fellow panelists up here. I'm not seeing all this reckless driving in Europe. Um, And what I am seeing is a lot of shared interests. to the degree that the realists are right and the liberals are wrong, and this gets back to the preceding question, um, there is some linkage between politics and security and economics. And indeed, we saw that uh, during the Cold War, um, some regions of the world were closed off to us economically for political and military reasons. Uh, So there there is some linkage there. And I would be inclined to think that continuing to work closely with NATO... Um, and perhaps having that uh, alliance evolve um, is 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 wiser than to you know simply to walk away from it. But again, I respect you know I think this is a real debate. Um, I don't think it's an. Some of my colleagues think it's probably an open and shut case. I don't. And on balance, um, NATO is one of those areas where I see enormous uh, similarities of interests um, in economic matters. Uh, in terms of where we see the world going, um, philosophical matters. So I, you know, I, I'm much less concerned about NATO than I am about you know some other possible alliances in the world.
3: So, so look, Ed, I, I agree with you. We have the kind of shared interests you're talking about. Like so, um, uh, uh, Europe is a good candidate for friend status. Like if we through from NATO in a graceful way, there's no reason to think we would then start mobilizing militarily to prepare to fight Germany and Britain, right? So we could still trade with them, have good diplomatic relations with them, all of those things. But, you know, from a defense commitment perspective, NATO is, um, you know, the richest and most powerful country in the world, committing to, def- to defend the second richest, most technically, state capacity area of the world from not a very big threat, right? So Europe can take care of itself. It has the capability that if we weren't interposing ourselves and giving them a free pass, Europe can handle whatever they see is going to happen. Like this is a, an alliance commitment to nothing. It allows some reckless driving. We could debate how much, but there's no positive side, Um, there's there's no need for the alliance
1: yeah and I think uh, Donald Trump has been portrayed by his political opponents for being some sort of lunatic for suggesting the U.S. uh, should withdraw from NATO but I think it's clear from this that this is a legitimate discussion that is long overdue and thank you for asking your question Um, so let's go all the way in the back there in the middle
10: Hi, I'm John Mueller from Ohio State and from Cato. I, this is kind of earth to panel. <laughs> um, the reckless driving in the last 15 years has not been done by Europeans. It's been done by the United States. Um, it has uh, cascaded into all kinds of disasters and has asked its allies to come along. Uh, if anything, they've, they've done, some, done a certain amount of restraint. You know, the French really tried to keep the United States out of the debacle in Iraq and failed. Uh, sometimes they contributed for a while, like the Australians and the British in uh, Iraq and many countries in Afghanistan, and then they got out. So, consequently, if reversing that, if some country in Europe gets into a knuckle, or Japan gets into some sort of knuckle headed uh, confrontation, it would seem that if the Allies don't have to go along with the United States, the United States wouldn't have to go along with the bone headed ally.
3: So you're right, John, that the United States has indeed driven recklessly as well, but um, that doesn't, uh, um, you know, kind of save the alliances. You can I mentioned Ukraine before, but just focusing on Europe, I, I think there's a fair amount of evidence that uh, the Europeans pushed us in a very substantial way to, to start the Libya uh, uh, mess, right? I mean, there's been a fair amount of reckless driving and dragging, and maybe my colleagues want to comment on the, on the entrapment. Like, there's bad behavior all around in the alliance that believes they could run the world, and, um, you know, just on this panel, we're focusing on the alliance aspects, but you're right. There are all kinds of other reasons that the U.S. might want to be a little less interventionist in its policies. Oh.
4: You know, it just turns out that when you have an alliance that everyone, and their mother swears up and down, will never go away, each member to that alliance is going to try to get the others to go along whatever its interests dictate at that particular uh, point in time. So I think Eugene's point's well taken. The U.S. hasn't trapped some of the European members of NATO. The European members of NATO haven't trapped the United States. And it isn't just the European members of NATO as a group, there are different European members of NATO with different interests. I think we see France and Germany trying to restrain many. Uh, European members of NATO from going further in Ukraine. We have states like Poland and the Baltics that want the U.S. to go further. We tried restraining the French over Libya. So there's enough guilt to go around. There's enough uh, blame to go around, but it just turns out world politics is a nasty business, and unless you have the credible threat of exit at some point, uh, entrapment's alive and real.
1: Up here front.
3: Hi, thank you. Uh, My name is Mitsuo Nakai, um, Japan native US citizen. I have a hypothetical question. Um, What if Japan go nuclear? Should we support that? If it's yes, why? If not, why not?
1: Should Japan go nuclear and should we support it?
2: Well, um, I think all things considered, it would be, the world is better if there are fewer nuclear states, right? So I'm not going to sign on to Ken Waltz's position that it's better if there are more. Um, But I'm not about to advocate going to great lengths to stop Japan from going nuclear. And so if part and parcel to an American withdrawal ended up being that all the proliferation literature I cited was wrong, right, and that Japan got very interested in nuclear weapons if we got out of Dodge, then I would say, so long and fairly well, you're a great power now. I expect you to take responsibility for yourself. If this is what you think is necessary, then so be it. Um, I would just say that I've looked at the Japanese case and many people have, have, have based their theories on it. I actually think it's quite unlikely that Japan will go nuclear, even if the United States were were to pull out in the region. There's just a, a great number of obstacles to the Japanese doing that. Um, but of all the states that could go nuclear, I think they would be among the most responsible Um, with the weapons, uh, and so they would probably be among that I would have the least worries about them acquiring. That would be my opinion.
4: Brendan, just to jump on a little bit on that, uh, your point's extremely well taken. The only caveat is Japan is, what, half a step away from going nuclear as it is. It's not like Japan is a denuclearized state without plutonium floating around the country in great quantities and technical know-how to build a bomb on short notice. Uh, So Japan going nuclear is another half a turn of the dial. It's not like it's going from zero to 100 overnight.
10: Hi, my name is Contessa Bourbon from The New York Times. I'd like to thank the panelists for this very informative session. I'd like to ask, um, U.S. is supporting militarily Ukraine and Georgia, and other countries in the Baltic and the Eastern Europe. How is the theory of um, spiral um, applies to this Russia and, um, as it um, expand or engage in military build-up?
3: Um. Well, so the first thing, and answer to your question, I mean, it's it's a really important uh, topic, right? Really important issue is that there's a there's a under the status quo, there's a difference between the U.S. relationship with Ukraine and Georgia and the U.S. relationship with the Baltics, right? So we've let the Baltics into NATO. So in principle, we've given them an Article Five guarantee under the NATO treaty that will defend them, or at least we'll have consultations if they're attacked. We will consult. We will consult if they're attacked, but the the There's a defense treaty. We don't have such a defense treaty with with Ukraine and Georgia. We did, in 2008, issue this communique saying that they will become members of NATO in the future. Um, And uh, I think that poked at the Russians because the Russians had made it very clear that these countries are on our border And we would be highly opposed to them becoming part of your alliance. I mean, it's like uh, Russia saying someday there's going to be an alliance with Mexico and Canada. And uh, the United States would be a little, I don't know. Upset about that, unhappy. Or perhaps putting missiles in Cuba. Or perhaps putting... Right, sure. So, so um, you know, we made an announcement that triggered a spiral. Like, we said, oh, don't worry, we're just going to defend Ukraine and Georgia. This is not about attacking Russia. and um, And the Russians looked at that and said this is our backyard and uh, this is a, these are countries that used to be part of our country and um, we're not entirely sure we see them as future Western countries, part of a military alliance that doesn't include us. And so we triggered the spiral dynamic um, by extending, and we may have gone, you know, certainly in my view, where I think we should pull back from NATO in general, I would also say that having already made that commitment to the Baltic states um, is, is a highly problematic thing. Like we should back away from that commitment in a graceful way. However, um, you know, the f- more we pushed, we pushed to the Baltics. Then we pushed to say, we're gonna do Ukraine and Georgia. And that's something that, that changed the dynamics of the US-Russia relationship in the direction of triggering a spiral, of creating more tension. Um, and so, it, you know, it exactly is the, rec- the reckless driving comment. Okay, I think
1: we have time for one more question.
3: So here on the aisle.
1: Hey, I'm um, Michael Crenshaw, computer science student at Liberty University. Um, Dr. Rhodes described a more technically and politically defensive posture for U.S. foreign policy, but as Dr. Green mentioned, um, cultural national identities tend to be major motivators in things like nuclear proliferation. How does a defensive strategy become feasible in a nation whose national identity seems to be, roughly speaking, that the enemy gets obliterated before we get bruised?
2: Well, uh, you know, I, I actually think that America has had historically uh, a number of different ways of understanding its identity. Uh, you know, Ben mentioned at the beginning of this uh, of this panel actually sort of a an older way of looking at how the United States understands itself uh, as sort of a city on a hill rather than going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And there's a strong tradition in American foreign policy uh, of looking at the world in exactly that way. Um, you know, even, even though if you want to say, look, we're not going back to the 19th century anytime soon, what, what you're describing is sort of a what Walter Russell Meade described as the Jacksonian impulse in American foreign policy. But the other half of that impulse is to leave well enough alone right, which is that, you know, the, the obliterate the enemy impulse comes after you've been messed with, but the Jacksonians, as, as Meade described them, uh, are, are more than willing to basically ignore people if they are being ignored by them. Um, so I think that there's enormous room within the traditions of American foreign policy uh, for the kind of strategy that's being supported by people in this room, um, and for the kind of, uh, sort of technical military policy that Eugene laid out, uh, and, his, and that Professor Rhodes advocated. Um, you know, it's just a question of making the case politically to do it, right? But the but the rhetorical resources are certainly there.
1: Okay, I think we'll end there then. Um, now we'll take a brief 15-minute break. Uh, For those of you who need some refreshment, water will be available in the Winter Garden near the first floor entrance. If you need to use the restroom, it's on the lower level. Just turn left when you go down the stairs and follow the hall down, it's on your right. Uh, And please join me now in thanking all our panelists for a great discussion.